You know, the famous last words of Jesus, seven times he spoke from the cross in the final six hours of his life as he was hanging upon the cross. And these are some of the most important, some of the most poignant words that Jesus spoke in a situation like that. You don't uh, tend to talk frivolously or talk about the non-essential stuff. You say only that which is most important, and you use the fewest words so that every word counts, every word matters. And that's what we see with the last sayings of Jesus on the cross. Today we're in Luke 23, and in verse 43, Jesus said from the cross, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus spoke these words to the thief that was next to him, that was dying beside him. Appropriate, isn't it? These are his second words that he spoke. The, the first words that he spoke were a prayer. His first words were spoken to his father. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. His next phrase, his next words were spoken to the criminal hanging next to him on the cross. And it was pointing to eternity. It was pointing to paradise. Yeah, right now is a really, really bad place. Being crucified by the Romans here on this hill is a terrible, terrible thing. This is a very, very dark day. But look beyond that day. Look beyond this darkness. Look beyond the suffering of this world and this life. And you will see paradise. And you'll see an eternity with God. So even while he was hanging on the, on the cross, Jesus was pointing us away from the darkness of this world and pointing us to an eternity in heaven with him. He was pointing us to the glory of God in all eternity. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. Today you will be with me in paradise are his words. Uh, it's speaking of the promise of heaven and how we need to cling to that promise of heaven, especially in times like this, especially in times when we look around and we see this world is sick. This world is dying. This world is, uh, well, there's a lot of suffering going on in this world. But we cling to that promise of heaven. That this world is not all that there is. There's something much bigger and better beyond this world. And this world is only just the preparation for the real thing that is yet to come, for eternity that is yet to come. So we can cling to that promise of heaven. The first thing that we see in Jesus' words as he spoke to the crim uh, criminal on the cross is that heaven is available to all who believe. It's available to everybody, to all who have put their faith and trust in Jesus. Look again at the words. He said, surely I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. So let's uh, pinpoint that you. I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Who is the you? Who is he talking to? Who is this guy that is hanging next to him on the cross? Well, believe it or not, we don't know much about him. But there are some assumptions that we can make about the criminal on the cross. Um, if, you, if you go to uh, earlier in the passage, it says there were two others. This is verse 32 in the same passage. There were two others, criminals, led with him to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on his left. So we're told very clearly that Jesus was crucified on the cross in the middle and that on either side of him, to his left and to his right, there was another criminal being crucified on the cross. And it des describes them as a criminal. 
Here, my New King James Version describes him as a criminal. Now, there's two Greek words for criminal. Now, there's one word that is just a common thief, like a pickpocket or a shoplifter or something like that, just a common thief. And uh, that word is kleptase. We get our word kleptomaniac from that, just somebody who steals, a common thief. That is not the word that is used here. This is a different word. It's, it's kind of like the next level up, the more aggressive thief, a more violent criminal. And uh, this word is, is lastase in the Greek. And uh, it is translated in, in, in different passages. It is used uh, of Barabbas. Barabbas is described as this word, this criminal, this thief, this violent criminal. It, uh, some, some translations, like my translation, uh, translates it criminals. In other places, other translation calls it robbers. Uh, some translations call it the old King James, call it malefactors. Well, that clears it up quite a bit, doesn't it? Uh, malefactors, like a, a general term for a bad guy. And I uh, think like some call it thieves. The NIV calls it rebels. And, and, you know, I hate to say it, but I, I think the NIV is probably the closest to this one. They actually got it uh, closest to the truth, the, the, the real significance, the real meaning of the word, that it is probably rebels, that these are violent people, because that's usually the ones that, that Rome would crucify. Now, Rome was not very discerning, all right, so they would probably crucify just about anybody. But they would really emphasize, they would really go after the ones that were rebels. If you were causing a disturbance and you were rebelling against Rome, against Rome's authority, well, then you had to pay the price and uh, they had to make an example out of you. And the, the, the worst way they could make an example out of you is by hanging you on the cross publicly. And so that was often the fate of those who would rebel against Rome. So, so my guess is that these uh, two guys were violent criminals and that they had uh, done violent things in the name of rebellion against Rome. That would be a safe assumption to assume that. And if that were, were true, it's also quite possible, maybe even likely, that these were religious rebels uh, among the Jews who were living in Jerusalem at that time under the Roman Empire, uh, there was a group of religious uh, people called the Zealots, and the Zealots were fighters. The Zealots were rebels. The Zealots were ones who uh, they resisted against Rome, and they did everything they could to usurp Rome and overthrow Rome. And they would do terrible things. Like, they couldn't face Rome in battle. I mean, they would never actually you know, say, here's our army, let's march against Rome's army, because Rome would crush them every single time. They could never do that. But they would just sneak around in the shadows and wait for opportunities to disrupt the Roman Empire. Uh, maybe, uh, maybe assassinate a, uh, a Roman soldier who gets isolated by himself and finds himself uh, alone in an alley somewhere, and the rebels can assassinate him. And uh, so, so they would do things like that. They would murder people. They would assassinate people. But they would do so in the name of the Jewish religion because they were religious, because they believed in God, because they believed in the Old Testament. Because they uh, were looking for a Messiah to, to come and save them from Rome, um, either they got tired of waiting for a Messiah, or in some cases they would fall for a fake Messiah because there was a lot of fake Messiahs around. And they'd say, maybe this is the guy that will lead us. And uh, they would follow the, the false Messiah, and they would uh, use violent 
methods in order to overthrow Rome. But so so their 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 main idea was actually right. They they actually believed God and they were looking for a Messiah. That they, they actually had the right idea as far as that is concerned. But they were using terrible methods. Their methods were methods of violence and criminality. They were, they were breaking the law and doing terrible things in order to enact what they thought was a good goal. And me, and, and this is this is just conjecture too. I mean, I'm just kind of putting some some pieces together. The, the scripture doesn't tell us much about these, but some have surmised that perhaps since this word is used of Barabbas, and it says that Barabbas was well known, and the crowds were cheering for Barabbas. Uh, it could be that Barabbas was the leader of the Zealots at this time and that Barabbas was the false Messiah, that people thought that Barabbas was the Messiah. People thought that Barabbas was going to lead them and overthrow Rome, and so people were rallying around Barabbas as the false deliverer, the false savior, the false Messiah. And uh, and Barabbas could have been the leader of the Zealots. And maybe these two guys were following him. Maybe these two guys thought Barabbas was the Messiah. Maybe they were working for him and plotting to overthrow Rome. We don't know any of that for sure, but it does say that Barabbas was well-known among the people, and it does say that the people cheered for Barabbas to be released. They were stoked up by the Pharisees to do that, but uh, if the, some of the people thought he was the Messiah, it was easy for the, for the Pharisees to do that, to stoke up the people because the people were kind of on his side already anyway. So, so these could be rebels that had done violent things, uh, thinking they were pleasing God, thinking they were bringing in God's kingdom. Um, but all of a sudden, this, this criminal who had been following perhaps Barabbas, perhaps a false messiah he'd been following, now he finds himself being crucified next to the real messiah, to the true savior. We're also told that these two criminals that were being crucified that at the beginning, that both it, it doesn't say that here in Luke, but in Matthew and in Mark, it, it, both it says that both of the criminals were mocking Jesus and ridiculing him. In, in our text, it says that uh, one of them was, it says one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, if you are the Christ, save yourself and uh, us. So this uh, context tells us that one of them, but if you look in Matthew and in Mark, it says that both of the criminals did that. So both of the criminals were mocking Jesus and blaspheming Jesus. Then one of them had an eye-opening experience. One of them, after mocking Jesus, here's the other one mocking him and, and realizes that maybe he's just looking, maybe he's just watching Jesus next to him. Maybe he's just seeing how Jesus responds. Maybe he heard Jesus' prayer as Jesus cries out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And, and maybe upon hearing that prayer, this criminal gazes upon Jesus and, and the light bulb comes on. He realizes that's the Messiah. That's the Savior. That's the one. I've been following the wrong one. I've been doing it the wrong way. I've been, I've been using these violent methods when, when here's the Savior right here and he's being crucified and he's, and he's praying to his Father. I, I don't know exactly how it happened, but somehow, somehow his eyes were open and he saw the truth. And he speaks 
It says the other answering rebuked him, rebuked the first one, saying, do you not even fear God? Pay attention to every word that this man says because he's right on. He's spot on. He gets it. He understands. He said, we should be fearing God right now. And that's right. That's exactly true. You should fear God. Don't you even fear God seeing that you are under the same condemnation? We're both under condemnation. We're both being hanged on the cross up here. We're in this together. And we indeed justly, because we have sinned. We have done terrible things. We have even murdered people. We're, we are guilty. We are sinners, and we're paying the due consequence of our sin. We're paying the penalty of our sin as we're hanging upon this cross. But this man, Jesus, he's done nothing wrong. He's the only one that's, that's pure, that's just, that's innocent. And here he is. He's hanging with us. He gets it. He understands. He has come to saving faith. He understands that he is a sinner, that he is guilty, that he deserves judgment, that he deserves death. The wages of sin is death. He gets it. He understands it. He is aware of his, the only enormous weight of his guilt and his shame and the judgment of God, the wrath of God that is being poured out upon him. And he understands that the one next to him is Jesus, is the Savior. He's the innocent one. He's the pure one. He's the one that's dying for me, on my behalf. He's the one that's dying for my sins. And then he says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He acknowledges the deity of Christ. He says, you're the king. You're the one. I acknowledge that you are my Lord. I acknowledge that you are the king over your kingdom. Just please remember me when you come into your kingdom. It's a prayer of saving faith. That's a genuine conversion that's going on here at the cross. This, this terrible criminal who has done terrible things realizes that he is wrong, repents of his sin, and turns with faith to the Savior. And that's exactly the way that it always works. That's the only way that it works. That's the way you came to saving faith. That's the way I came to saving faith. Not, not on the cross, but we, we came to saving faith by repenting of our sins, acknowledging that we are worthy of judgment of God's wrath, of turning to Jesus in faith and asking him to save us, asking him to remember us, acknowledging that he is the Lord, that he is the Savior, that he is the King. That's, that's salvation right there. That's saving faith right there. Saving faith exercised by the criminal in his last dying moments. That says a lot about salvation, doesn't it? It says a lot about salvation by faith. That salvation is just by, by trusting Christ and it's not by works. If it was by works, this guy couldn't do it. He didn't have time to do any works. If he needed to be baptized to be saved, he couldn't do it. He didn't have any time to be baptized in order for him to be saved. If he had to go to church to be saved, he couldn't do it. He was dying. If you get to heaven and they weigh all your works, and if your good works that way, your bad works, you're saved. If that's the way it works, this guy didn't have a chance. Because he had a whole lifetime of bad works, and he just got saved. He didn't have time to do any good works. So this guy would be lost forever. That's not the way it works. Salvation is by faith alone, and we're so thankful that salvation is by faith alone. And that even the worst sinners can come to Christ 
even in their dying breaths, they can come to Christ and find forgiveness and salvation. They can come to saving faith. The worst sinner, the, the worst sin is paid for. Jesus died for the worst sin, whatever it is, whatever the, the worst thing you've ever done. Maybe there's a memory that still haunts you. Maybe you, you have always regretted doing something. and you, Maybe you've even wondered if there is any forgiveness for you. There is forgiveness at the cross. Jesus died for that sin. Nobody else might know what it is, but God knows what it is. Jesus knows what it is, and he died for it. He forgave it. The worst sinner can come to Jesus and find salvation. And even after a, a lifetime of sin, a lifetime of wickedness, a lifetime of evil, you can turn to Christ in your, in your final moments and find forgiveness and salvation. Do you remember the story that, that Jesus told about the workers waiting to be hired? And the, uh, the, the boss comes in and, and hires the workers for a day's wage. I'll give you a denarius, a day's wage, if you work for me all day in the field. And they say, yeah, that's what we're here for. And it's a fair wage. And we'll, we'll, we'll gladly work all day and sweat and toil for you for a denarius, for a day's wage. That's why we're here. And so they do. And then the boss comes back later in the, in the morning, like at 9 o'clock in the morning, and hires some more. He says, come and work in the field, and I'll pay you. They say, yep, we're here to do that. And then he comes uh, later in the afternoon and hires some more. And then right at one hour before quitting time, he hires some more and says, just get out there for the last hour and work, and I'll pay you what's due. And then the boss started going down the line, and, and he started paying them, and he gave them a denarius, a day's wage, for the ones that just worked an hour. And he gave them the same denarius, the same day's wage, for the ones that worked all day. And you look at that and say, well, that doesn't seem very fair. <laughs> it's not about fairness, is it? But it is about the grace of the boss. The boss is generous, and he gives more than what is due to the ones who work only one hour. He gives them abundantly more. He gives them a whole day's wage just for working an hour. For the other ones, he gives them a fair wage, a fair wage that they agreed on, that they were happy to sign up for, and he gives it to them. But, uh, but it's kind of reminiscent of that, isn't it? This, this fact that uh, you can be a sinner your whole life and yet turn to God at the very end of the last hour, the last hour, and you get the same reward. You get the same benefit. You get heaven, and, and you get the same salvation. Now, the, the good news is there's a lot of other benefits that you can get by getting saved now, too. You don't want to wait and suffer your whole life and then uh, get saved at the last minute. It never works out very well that way. I do not recommend that, but I'm just saying that if a sinner turns to Christ at any time, they receive the same reward, the same heaven, the same salvation. It's a beautiful picture that we have here of the criminal on the cross, of the rebel on the cross. And it's a reminder that heaven is available to all who believe. Just turn to Jesus, put your faith in him. Heaven is available. It says something else about heaven itself, that heaven is a real place of conscious existence, that there's a lot of theology that you can dig out of this one passage, this one story, and there's a lot of different ways that theologians look at it. And it's kind of confusing. It's kind of confusing to me, and I'm trying to teach it to you. So uh, if the teacher is confused, well, you're going to be really confused too. But we're, we're going to try to work through some of this theology and what it says uh, about heaven. So the text is, Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. So that's what our focus is going to be on that last word, paradise. 
So on, on the first part, we, we focus on the you, talking about the criminal. Who is the criminal and how can he be saved? Uh, now we're focusing on paradise. What is Jesus talking about when he says, today you will be with me in paradise? So for, there's a couple of questions we're going to ask, theological questions. The first theological question is, what is paradise? And it might surprise you to learn that there's different ideas about that. Oh, okay, it probably won't surprise you because you know the theologians like to argue about everything. And so you might as well argue about paradise, too. So what is paradise? Well, paradise is not used very often. Heaven is used a lot in the Bible. But paradise is not used very often. It's used in Second uh, Corinthians. Paul uses it. And he tells a story in the third person. But I'll give you a hint. I think he's talking about himself. Right? I think Paul is talking about Paul, but he's talking about himself in the third person. He doesn't want to say his, his name. He doesn't want to say I. And so he says, I know a guy. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows. Such a one was caught up to the third heaven. And I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body I do not know, God knows how he was caught up into paradise. So, so look at those two things there, third heaven and then paradise. Third heaven and the paradise, they were the same thing. He said he got caught up into paradise, he got caught up into the third heaven, it's the same thing. So paradise is the third heaven where God dwells, where God is. It's the presence of the almighty God. That's paradise. It's used in 2 Corinthians here. It's used also in Revelation. In Revelation 2, it says, To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. So this is the letters to the churches. I think this is the letter to uh, the church of Ephesus. And he says, if you overcome, you can eat of the tree of life, and the tree of life is in the midst of the paradise of God. Well, we know where the tree of life is because later on in Revelation, uh, you have the New Jerusalem descends, and there in the New Jerusalem, in the... Um, in the eternal state, you have the tree of life, and people eat of the tree of life. So again, that's, that's the presence of God, is what we normally think of as heaven. So, so I, I take the more simplistic view of this. I, I know theologians will disagree on this, but, but I take the more simplistic view because I'm a simple person, uh, that, that paradise and heaven are the same thing, that they're interchangeable, that it's, it's the presence of God and you can call it heaven, you can call it paradise. Uh, here you got the, the kind of the image of the Garden of Eden, because the Garden of Eden was a paradise. That Again, the Garden of Eden is where God dwelt. That's what made it special, is where God lived. And so uh, that was called paradise. And then at the end of the Bible, you have the New Jerusalem, and, and you have the Tree of Life there. And here it says the Tree of Life is in the paradise of God. And so you do kind of have this image of a garden, this wonderful, peaceful environment, where God is, where you have a perfect relationship with God. That's paradise. It's heaven. I would say they're the same thing. Now, there are some uh, theological distinctions that, that uh, people try to make in there, and they try to say that um, uh, there, there was a different realm where, where people went to uh, before Jesus, before Jesus died on the cross, that... Um, you had believers and unbelievers that both went in, down into the general area of, of the dead. Sheo is the Old Testament uh, Hebrew term for it, the realm of the dead. But you had the, uh, the believers and unbelievers there together, separated by a gulf, because you remember the, the story that Jesus told about the rich man of Nazareth. 
you had the, the rich man died, an unbeliever, and he woke up in torment. Uh, Lazarus died, the believer, and he woke up in Abraham's bosom uh, in comfort. And they have a picture of this wonderful feast. That's what that picture is. Uh, enjoying, uh, sitting around the table with God and, and the, the, our fathers, Abraham, and enjoying a wonderful feast. Uh, but, they, but they were kind of in the same place where they could see each other and communicate with each other a little bit. There but a, a gulf between them. So some people think it was like that before Jesus died, and then after Jesus, and, and that could be called where, where the good people were, where the righteous people were, where the saved people were. That that part of it was called paradise. But then when Jesus died on the cross, that he uh, changed things and he took people from that paradise, he took them up into heaven, and so that's a different place. Uh, so that's a possibility. There are theologians uh, that say that. Uh, that's a little bit too complex for me to understand exactly how that works. But if I'm laying that out, there, there is possibly a distinction between there. But, but I, I just think of it more simply that, that paradise is where, where uh, God is and where, where heaven is. And, uh, but yet, there, there is this theological thing that we have to talk about. The next question, even if once you figure out what paradise is, what, what paradise is Jesus talking about, the, the next question then is, uh, where does Jesus go while he died? Does Jesus descend into hell? Because if you read the Apostles' Creed, uh, this is the Apostles' Creed, and it's a, it's a great creed of, of faith, statement of faith in what the Bible teaches. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, in Christ Jesus, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, was buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. So the Apostles' Creed says that we believe that uh, Jesus descended into hell. So what does that mean? And it's kind of interesting because, really, uh, you read uh, theologians that quote the Apostles' Creed and believe the Apostles' Creed, but they'll say different things about it. They'll say, yes, Jesus descended into hell, but what that means is that Jesus suffered and died on the cross. And so on the cross, he experienced Hell. He experienced pretty much all the suffering of hell while he was suffering on the cross. Not that he died and his soul went descended into hell. That didn't happen. But Jesus descended into his own personal hell as he suffered and died and bled on the cross. So some people take it kind of metaphorically, not literally. Um, some people take it literally that, yes, Jesus died. And when he died, his body was taken off the cross, but his soul descended into, into hell. And then, and then that camp breaks into two different to two different groups. Well, if, if the soul of Jesus went into hell, why did the soul of Jesus go to hell? And there's a group that says, well, he went to hell because he had to bear our punishment. Sinners go to hell. And if he was going to take our punishment upon him, then he had to go to hell and suffer the same punishment that we would have suffered had we died in our own sin and gone to hell. And so some people say Jesus went into hell to suffer. So between the crucifixion and the resurrection, Jesus was suffering in hell in torment, uh, bearing our sins for our sins. And uh, so some people say that. Uh, I reject that view for sure. And I reject that view based on some, some other statements in Scripture. In fact, based on some of Jesus' own final words that we're going to get to later on in the next few weeks. Based on Jesus' own, own final words when he said it is finished, I think he meant it's finished. His suffering was finished. He wasn't going to suffer uh, 
beyond that, that his work was done. He had accomplished what he came here to do. So when Jesus said it is finished, I, I don't think he had any, any more suffering to do after that. And, uh, and also Jesus said, into your hand, Father, into your hand, I commend my spirit. So uh, I don't think his spirit went down into hell to suffer. I, I think um, I, I will argue against that one. The other view is that Jesus went down into hell, that his spirit went down into hell, but he went into hell as a victor. To, to, to declare victory and to lead captivity captive. And that's why I was talking about uh, taking those who are in paradise and taking them up to heaven. If there's a distinction between paradise and heaven, between the realm of the dead in the Old Testament and heaven in the New Testament, uh, that's where this comes in. People think that, yes, Jesus descended into the realm of the dead, but he did so as a conquering victor to declare victory and to take uh, the righteous, the saved ones from the Old Testament up to the presence of the Father. Again, that is a, a viable option. I, I won't argue too much against that. Other than that, it's a little bit too much for my feeble brain to understand exactly uh, how that would work. and It's a little bit too complicated. Uh, but, but it is a viable option. It is a possibility that that is what happened. But you, you say, well, where did, where did he get those ideas from? Where, why does the Apostles' Creed say he descended into hell? Well, there's a few different verses that say that, that seem to, to indicate that, that you could get that from. Uh, Romans 10 says, the righteousness of faith speaks in this way, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. So it talks about Christ, and it talks about ascending up into heaven and descending into the abyss. So did Jesus descend into the abyss when he was on the cross? Well, it uses that language here, but I think it's clear from the context that it's not what it's talking about here in the context. And, and there's other ways to interpret it. There's much simpler ways of, of interpreting it. That when it talks about ascending into, into heaven, uh, that we know that, that Christ ascended into heaven after his death and burial and resurrection, that he ascended into heaven. When it talks about uh, descending into abyss, it actually says in parentheses there that it's to bring Christ up from the dead. It's just talking about coming up from the dead. Not coming up from hell, but coming up from the dead. So, so I think there's probably easier ways to interpret this and uh, even though it uses the language of descending into the abyss, but it's clear from the context that that's not what he's talking about. He's just talking about being raised from the dead, and that's exactly what Jesus did. All right, so that's one verse, but again, that verse is kind of unclear. All of these verses, I think, are unclear, so that's why it's, it's hard to make a build a theology on unclear passages. But the other one is Ephesians 4. Uh, verse 8, and, 8 through 10, it says, Therefore he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive. Now this is a very clear reference to a victory march. You do see that image. That image comes through loud and clear. And um, they, they had uh, victory marches back then that are kind of unfamiliar to us. When was the last time we had a victory march? I, I'm thinking, didn't we have one after the first Gulf War? Uh, didn't, they, they had some kind of ticker tape parade and the generals, uh, you know, drove through because uh, the, the first, this was like in 1991 or somewhere in there. And they had some kind of parade because uh, the initial round of, of combat was just swift, swift and decisive and we won. And so we party, we celebrate. 
and I know they, they did something like that after World War II and so forth. You can you can uh, go back and and uh, think about some of the various celebrations that we had victory parades, but they, they had something similar back then where the conquering general would march through town and parade the slaves of his captives, his enemies. I've defeated and conquered my enemies and here are their ragtags, uh, remnants that are left that are my slaves now. And uh, so it's, it's a clear symbolism of the triumphant king declaring victory over his enemy. And so you do see that imagery here, and it's used of Jesus, that he ascended on high, he led captivity captive, he gave gifts to men, that's what the conquering king does. Uh, does. He says, here's all the, the spoils of war, and now he divides them among his troops and among his friends. Uh, now this, he ascended, what does it mean? But he first descended into the lower parts of the earth. Well, what does that mean, that Christ descended into the lower parts of the earth? Does that mean that he went to hell? Does that mean that Jesus went to hell? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all heaven, that he might fill all things. Again, it's not real clear. The, the imagery is clear. The imagery is of a conquering king. Uh, that part is clear. But the rest of the terminology there is a little bit uncertain. Does it really mean that Jesus descended into hell? Uh, there, there's another way you can uh, translate it and look at it, just generally that Christ descended from heaven to earth uh, to be the Savior, to die on the cross, and that after he died on the cross, that he ascended as a victor, as a conquering king, and that's the imagery that we get here. It doesn't necessarily mean that he descended into heaven, but you can see how you could get that from the language. So, so again, it's unclear, but the language is there. And then you get uh, 1 Peter 3, 1 Peter 3, 18 to 20. For Christ also suffered once for sins. This is another reason why I believe for sure that Christ did not go to hell to suffer, to, uh, to pay the penalty of our sin. He did not go to hell to suffer. Um, but it says Christ also, also suffered once for sin, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but been made alive in the spirit. This is a great synopsis of the gospel right here. One of the clear gospel verses that Christ suffered for our sins, uh, that he might bring us to God, that he put to death the flesh, made alive in the spirit. So death and resurrection are all there. But then it says this, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison who formerly were disobedient. Now what in the world does that mean? Well, again, this is wide open and there's all kinds of different views. Uh, first, uh, you have to figure out what did, what did he preach? What was his message? Was it a message of repentance? Like, give you one more last chance. If you believe in me, you can get saved. Did he go to hell and give him one more chance to get saved? Was he preaching the gospel? Or was he preaching uh, victory? Was he declaring victory? Uh, like uh, Ephesians give us that picture there in Ephesians. So what does it mean that he preached? What? Who are the spirits? And what is the prison? Who are the spirits in prison? Are these uh, people who have died? Are these people who are alive? Are these uh, angels who have sinned against God and are now in prison? Uh, is prison hell? Or is prison some kind of uh, enchainment of the, of the angels? Uh, There's so many variables in here and so many questions that uh, I, I really wouldn't use this verse to pinpoint any theology directly just because it's, it's unclear. You, you would have to take this verse and compare it with other clearer scriptures uh, if you want to enforce, reinforce your theology. You, you better back it up with something that's a little more clear than this. So, so always compare scriptures with scriptures and, and always uh, understand that the clearest ones first, those passages where it's actually talking about 
uh, the theology that you're, you're working on. Uh, if you're talking about that subject, go with those uh, scriptures first. And so, so these are, are kind of unclear. There's a lot of variables in here. What does it mean? And people have a lot of different ideas about that. Um, in the context, the, next, the very next verse talks about the flood. And so some people think it's talking about the time of the flood. Some people think it's talking about the people at the time of the flood. Other people think it's talking about angels at the time of the flood. Could, could be either one, but then in the context, it is talking about the flood here in 1 Peter 3. So it's very unclear. So I, I, would, I would just prefer just to keep it simple and uh, to say that when Jesus died on the cross, he, he absolutely did not suffer. If he descended into hell, it was to declare victory and have the victory parade and victory march. But I'm open to that possibility, uh, even though I'm not sure if, if that's the case either. But, but I'm open to that possibility. But, but either way, it, it, it's a sign of the, the, the wonderful uh, victory that was won, the spiritual battle going on and the victory that, uh, that Christ could take us to heaven, that heaven is a real place. That he, he turned to the one next to him and said, Today you will be with me in paradise. That you're not going to go into some kind of soul sleep where your soul is uh, is just dormant until the resurrection. That's not going to happen. You're going to be with me in paradise. You'll have a conscious existence. You'll be with God. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And it's eternal security in heaven with Christ forever and ever. It's a glorious promise of the conquering king. It's just a, a wonderful phrase that, that Jesus gives to the dying criminal on the cross next to him. He says, today you will be with me in paradise. Let's close with a word of prayer.